This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 194 for Monday, June 14th, 2010. Dwarf Planets. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Evertsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. I hear you've, you've been infested with uh, groundhogs. We have a giant, just one, one rodent of unusual size yeah. eating in our backyard. And it's really, really cute. Oh, it's adorable until they tear your whole yard apart and make it yeah, unusable. Yeah, but we've, we've already got moles and squirrels and yeah, yeah. It, I, I'm not worried. Just give it back to nature. Yep. All right. Well, in 2006, the International Astronomical Union demoted Pluto out of the Planet Club. But they also started up a whole new dwarf planet club with Pluto, Eris, and the asteroid Ceres as charter members. Let's find out what it takes to be a dwarf planet and discuss the current membership. All right. Well, now, our, the first episode of Astronomy Cast was us talking about why Pluto is no longer a planet. I was hoping we could do an update. You know, Pluto back in the planet club? Nope. Nope. So then it's really kind of official. Let's uh, let's follow it up. Let's set it in stone. Dwarf planets. There have always been dwarf planets. And there will always be dwarf planets. Well, there haven't always been dwarf planets. But <laughs> we're, we're, re- we're rewriting the history books now. All right. Well, let's talk about the history. <laughs> so let's let's provide a shorter version of of what happened in two thousand and six. Well, at a meeting of the International Astronomical Union, it was decided that they needed to figure out what to do with all of these giant icy bodies in the outer solar system. Right. This is really triggered by the discovery of Eris. Which is by, bigger than Pluto. And which is bigger than Pluto. NASA called it the 10th planet. And so there was a lot of people up in arms. No, there aren't 10 planets. And there, my favorite argument of all is if we start calling all of these icy bodies planets, then there's too many planets for the children to memorize. And I'm like, but there's 26 letters of the alphabet and we make them learn those. And there's 50 states in America and we make them learn those. And But I, but I can imagine with the success of, of the, the, you know, the icy body finders, the, the Kuiper Belt <laughs> object discoverers, right. that there was going to be more and more of these objects. And so you'd have, you know, from 2006 to 2010, there were 10 planets. And then from 2010 to, you know, 2015, there were 11 planets. And, you know, as the telescopes get bigger, especially you can imagine what James Webb might be able to turn up. So right. just a matter of time before they find more and more and more of other 15 planets, 20 planets. And that starts to become a matter of, well, what makes a planet a planet? And this is where you start to get to logical arguments. The, well, we can't have that many planets because the children can't memorize them. Mm-hmm. That, that's not a rational argument, people. But saying, well, Ceres in the asteroid belt, it was considered a planet for 50 years before we started turning up other asteroids and realized, oh, it's part of a family of objects. Let's call the whole family asteroids. Well, Pluto was the first one found in the Kuiper belt, and now we're finding all these other chunks of ice. And, well, it's now the Kuiper belt. So 
demoting Pluto is sort of like demoting Cirrus. We just realized, oh, it, it's not really a planet. It's part of this family of specific objects. And the analogy I always use is if aliens were cleaning up our solar system and sorting things into bins, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, they'd get thrown in a bin, and then all the rocky stuff would more or less get thrown in bins and all the icy stuff would more or less get thrown in bins and who knows what they do with Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars but those would probably get their own standalone bin as well so yeah we have all this icy stuff, not really planets no, not physically planets but for a certain class of objects, they're all round, they're in hydrostatic equilibrium and Haimea isn't exactly round because it's spinning wildly but it could be round if someone stopped it spinning and so now we look at physical characteristics right and so that was so in 2006 the iau decided to do something about eris and and once and for all and so they came up with their three rules for planets Right. Something has to be in hydrostatic equilibrium, which means the sucker's round. So it has to be a sphere. So something kind of, uh, when you think of like the Mars moons, Phobos and Deimos, they're not round. They're they're asteroids. They're, as you call them, spuds. So those wouldn't, even if they were going around the sun, they would not count. And and the way they make an exception for Haumea is they look at it and acknowledge that If it were left alone, the self-gravity of the object would cause it to collapse into a round shape. Right. So that's rule number one, right? It's got to be round. So rule number two needs to be orbiting the sun. So if you have a giant object orbiting Jupiter, it does not count as a planet. And we do. We have Ganymede, which is bigger than Mercury. Right. So So were it orbiting the sun, it would be a planet. But it's not. But it's so not. It's a moon. So it's out. But it is in hydrostatic equilibrium. It, uh, but it doesn't orbit the sun, so it's out. Not a planet. And then the third rule, right? The kicker. The the kicker is it needs to have cleared out its orbit, and this is where a lot of the controversy comes in. So if if you took Earth and you put it out at the distance of Pluto, the huge volume of its orbit, the Earth just wouldn't be able to clear that out. So even the Earth in the Kuiper belt wouldn't count as a planet. So this is where folks like Alan Stern start looking at the definition we have for a planet and saying, no, guys, we need to rethink this. We need to start classifying things based on the characteristics of the objects. And here's where a lot more controversy comes in as, well, what do you start requiring? And no one really knows. And everyone's just sort of grasping at straws at the moment. But we know we need to change the definition because the whole must be orbiting the sun part kind of means that, well, things orbiting Eta Arundi and 51 Peg and all these other stars out there, they technically aren't planets. But Right, but you just change it to orbiting their star, right? Right, but still, that's a change in definition. So while we're rewriting the definition, let's start to consider what other things do we need to put into the definition to make, well, planets incontrovertibly planets. Right, and what if they orbit a pulsar, right? So, <laughs> Yeah. And yeah. what if they orbit two stars in some strange way? Anyway, yeah, I can see that it might get more complicated. Okay, so we've got the three rules, right? It's got to be a ball, it's got to go around the sun, and it's got to have cleared out its orbit. So what are the current 
dwarf planets? So currently, there's five known dwarf planets, five acknowledged dwarf planets. We have Cirrus hanging out in the asteroid belt. And then, of course, there's Pluto and its demoted self in the Kuiper belt. We have Haimea and Makey Makey. And then there's Eris. Um, so these are five very, very different objects. And there's two more that a lot of people group in, but we don't know enough about them. So there's Quawar, which is utterly unpronounceable, and uh, Sedna, which we just don't know if these two objects are in hydrostatic equilibrium. So we, we need better data to figure those two out. But they probably are. And these objects are actually quite different, especially Cirrus compared to the Kuiper Belt objects. So let's take a look at Cirrus first. So Cirrus, it's it's a rock. It's um, nearby. It formed right along the what we call the frost line in the solar system. It's on the inside of the frost line. So when it formed, it actually formed without any volatiles. It, it looks like a moon. It looks a lot like our own moon. It has craters. It has variations in color on the surface. But it's hanging out in the asteroid belt, leering over all of the potatoes in its sphericalness. Right. I mean, Cirrus is, is the largest object in the asteroid belt by, by far. You know, it's got a third of the mass... Right. Um, it's, but it hasn't cleared out the, the space around it. No, no. And, and it's not actually that big once you start comparing it to some of the other dwarf planets. It's, its radius is 487-ish kilometers along the equator. It's 455 along the pole. So it's, it's a lot bigger than all the other asteroids, but it's not the biggest thing out there. And the cool thing is that uh, NASA's Dawn spacecraft is going to be getting to Cirrus in 2015 after it's already explored Vesta next year. Right. And um, so this means we're going to have two more dwarf planets getting explored in the not-too-distant future because then we also have new horizons. So apparently we're focused on sunrises, sunsets, and horizons with these missions. (laughs) Um, We have new horizons going out to visit Pluto. Also uh, in 2015. Yes. Yeah. And that's going to be then, a big year. And they're looking for another target for New Horizons to go to after Pluto. So hopefully we're going to be able to get two icy bodies for the cost of one satellite. So then we talked about Pluto. So we can kind of jump out then to take a look at Pluto, which is very different from Sirius. So Pluto, it, it's a system. It has moons. Its surface is pretty much solid ice. This is an icy body, and its atmosphere comes and goes. When it's closest to the sun, it has a very, very diffuse atmosphere. And then that atmosphere snows out when it's at its most distant, and then it's a nice atmosphere-less icy blob. One thing I heard Mario Olivia say once that I'm never going to forget is you can't call Pluto a planet because if you gave it, and I'm paraphrasing, you gave it the orbit of a comet, it would grow a tail on the inner solar system. And that's not the way a planet should behave. That's just not, that's just not civilized. No, not at all. So it probably has a rocky core. It is denser than water, but it has this icy outer layer. And yeah, if you brought it close to the sun, the sucker would grow a tail. Its density is only two times 10 to the third grams per cubic meter. That's twice the density of water. So it's, it's still not that rocky of a rocky body. Right. And Pluto has a moon that's 
a significant portion of its own mass. And in fact, the two objects with Tron and Pluto, they orbit a common center of mass. And so for a while there, there was a possibility that Tron would be considered a dwarf planet all on its own. Right. That that was part of the argument, actually, is of, well, what, what do we start calling all of these things? They were, they were throwing everything in. If it's round, we're going to call it a planet. So all of these smaller bodies were also getting considered. And Sharon, they, they kicked out. And this is where they start looking at secondary parameters. They start looking at the densities. They start looking at the, well, is it round because it hasn't been beaten up that much? Or is it round because this is its default shape due to gravity? And with Charon, if you beat it up enough, it would stay in a deformed state. Oh, okay. So it just hasn't been beaten up enough. And so it's got a fairly circular shape. Hmm. Right. Okay. And then the next object out is Haimea. Right. And this one's just interesting in so many different ways. So first of all, it it's not round as near as we can tell. Now, we don't have any perfect images of it. Instead, what we look at is how does its brightness vary over time? And it's thought based on watching light curves as it rotates that it's probably much longer on one axis than the other, and this implies fairly fast rotation. Now, at the same time, because we don't have any direct images, it could also be just another one of these strange objects that has two extremely different albedos. We've seen this on some of the moons out there. But it's thought, no, this is actually something that simply has very different dimensions in the two axes, um, almost a factor of two difference. So looking at it, we make this guess at the shape, we make this guess at its rotation period, and as near as we can tell, it's a fast-rotating oblong object, and it probably just got the tar knocked out of it in a collision early on in our solar system's past. Now, this was the second giant object found out in the Kuiper Belt. It... um, also had a fairly controversial beginning. The people who are normally acknowledged for finding it are Michael Brown and his team. But if you actually look at the official notice for it, it's kind of confusing because it's acknowledged as having been discovered at Sierra Nevada Observatory in Spain, but then it's given the name that was submitted by Michael Brown's team And if you read back about what happened, Michael Brown had been observing it along with the rest of his team. And as they were pulling together all of their data, they nicknamed it Santa Claus and they observed it multiple times. And they were holding back with it and some other objects to have a really big release. And they'd written an abstract that was submitted to a conference And somehow a Spanish team got wind of it. They looked up, well, they looked at the conference abstract. They did some Googling. They found the observing logs, which give you a sense of where on the sky the telescopes were pointed. And apparently Michael Brown and his team didn't know their observing logs were public. 
And so the Spanish team, knowing an object had been discovered, knowing the rough area on the sky where it had been discovered, went back through some archival images, back to 2003 archival images, found the object in the archival images, did follow-up observations based on the positions of Michael Brown team's observing logs, rediscovered the object using the predictions, and then sent in their results to the Minor Planet Center. Now, this put the Minor Planet Center in a horrible position because, well, initially Michael Brown sees a discovery of one of his objects, kind of does the, oh no, other people are looking at the same things I am, rushes Eris, which was bigger than Pluto and really important to him, to publication. And this was like on a Friday afternoon, a bunch of us looking at the press releases were like, wait, huh? Press release Friday afternoon? This makes no sense. There's some story behind this. And Michael Brown was, he, he took the high road. He congratulated the Spanish team and he admitted, yeah, some folks looked at my observing logs and that's why I rushed Eris to publication. Really sorry to step on your thunder. Um, but the Spanish team didn't acknowledge they were the ones who looked at his observing logs and he figured that out later and ended up lodging a complaint. And so the announcement and the naming of this object really got held up in the politics of trying to figure out who do we give credit to. And they ended up giving credit to both teams by naming the observatory from the one team and using the name from the other team. Um, it, it was David Rabinowitz that came up with the, the name. Um, it's the matron goddess of the island of Hawaii where Mauna Kea Observatory is, where their team was observing it. But it was just a political mess. And as near as anyone can tell, having public data logs is a really bad idea when you're discovering objects. And the Spanish team read the observing log, realized no one had published the discovery yet, and stole it. Is the allegation. Is the allegation. Right. right. We have no proof either way. So next is... Uh, so you're saying it's it's maki maki not? I think it's makey makey, makey, makey. rhymes with bake and right. bake. Right, makey makey. Right, it's it's not a fish dish. I keep trying to turn it into <laughs> one. <laughs> um, this one is was discovered by um, Michael Brown and team. Yes, yes. So this one was announced back in 2005. It's the third largest known dwarf planet. This is a big old object and um it it's on a really weird orbit it comes in as close as 38 and a half au goes out as far as 54 au so it's really elongated it's a rock well actually it's a block of ice it's a block of ice it's a snowball it's a block of ice yeah it's it's not the most exciting of them yeah there's not not a lot that's very interesting so let's just move on uh, to uh to eris <laughs> Well, Eris, this is where we get into the big controversy. For almost a year, it got referred to as the 10th planet, even by NASA. Or Xena. Um, or Xena. That, that's the other one that was particularly cool. Yeah. Is um, Its code name was Xena, and it has a moon. And uh, so its code name for the moon was Gabrielle. And I think everyone was really hopeful that silliness would prevail. But no, it didn't. Just, Although the no. name they came up with was pretty great. 
the the name they came up with was pretty great and it was almost kind of sad though because Michael Brown's daughter was born at the same time and her name was Lilith and rumor has it he wanted to name it after his daughter but that wasn't allowed so the dwarf planet's name is Eris its moon's name is Dysnomia and we were lucky to be able to find it when we did. This is, again, an, an object that has an extremely elongated orbit, comes into about 38 AU, but then it goes out to 98 AU, and it's it's not visible out there. Its orbital period is actually 557 years. Wow. So it, Brown and company, Brown and Trolula and Rabinowitz, they were lucky to catch it when it did because it's on its way in right now. It's it's on some of its closest approach, and we get to observe it, and then it goes away for a while. Right. It gets as close as 37 AU and as far away as 97 AU. So that's a big difference between yeah. its closest point and its most distant point. Yeah. And it's got a moon, and it's bigger than Pluto. And it, it's a lot bigger than Pluto. Yeah. That's cool. It's dense, it's big, and it's on a really weird orbit. Uh, this is one of those objects that leads people to, to really start trying to figure out what could cause these weird things. But there are weirder objects lurking out there still awaiting final classification. And so... With these, the five dwarf planets and two, I, two or three provisional ones, two Sedna and Quar, mm-hmm. are pretty close and maybe with better observations, seeing their orbits for longer, maybe discovering a moon, that'll make a big difference. Right. But it really is just a matter of time before more of these Kuiper Belt objects, large Kuiper Belt objects are, are turned up. And, and that's what's so amazing is, is so for instance, Quar. It's it's a rock. It's it's a known rock. There there's a great post over on uh, Emily Lakdawalla's blog, the Planetary Society blog, titled "Quarwar: A Rock in the Kuiper Belt," where she pulls a bunch of the images um, where they were looking to see its moon and trying to figure out its mass. It, its moon is named Waywat, which is just fun to say, and so they're out there. They're trying to figure these things out, and as they look at them. Quaywar, we don't know where this rock in the Kuiper Belt came from, and that leads to a lot of questions about dynamics. We look at Sedna that has this really weird orbital radius of 509 AU. This is another object we were lucky to catch when we did. That's like five, it'll orbit five times further away from the sun than Eris. Right. And more like 10 times further away than Pluto, but happens to be at the closest point of this really elliptical orbit. And so we look at these things and start wondering, well, what gravitationally could cause something like this? And there's some folks working on planetary orbits who figured out, well, there could easily be an Earth-sized object, a Neptune-sized object, a Jupiter-sized object out thousands of AU from the sun, just waiting to be found. And then, of course, there's the eternal search for Nemesis, a, a small dwarf star that's orbiting our sun waiting to be discovered. So there could be um, more things that we'd recognize as planets waiting to be discovered, just not reflecting a whole lot of light. Yeah. 
And so it's really just a matter of time. So we'll be updating this show somehow <laughs> as we as we go. In ten years, when we you know have episode five hundred of Astronomy Cast, <laughs> we'll um, yeah we'll have uh, we'll have probably more dwarf planets by then, especially with the launch of the James Webb Telescope. So we'll we'll stay tuned. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Pamela. Sounds great, Fraser. Talk to you later. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.